So this morning we are in week seven of our series through the book of Ephesians, and this passage this morning, it's a challenging one. I'm just going to prepare you. It's a tough one. Because in this passage, Paul has some very strong and direct things to say about how we use our words, our money, and our bodies. Feels like a good time to remind you that today is Pastor Appreciation Day um, and, and, and to go with me on this journey. But Paul has some really interesting things to say, some very helpful things to say. I think when we think of our words, our money, and our bodies, these are all powerful forms of self-expression, maybe the three most important powerful forms of expression that we have. And Paul is telling these believers in Ephesus, which, uh, you know, a modern-day version of Ephesus would be New York City. So he's writing to this cultural center, and he's saying, in the light of who God is, and in the light of what God has done, we should not use any of those things, our words, our money, and our bodies, without reference to God and reverence for God. And this is what Paul is presenting us with. Now, before I uh, dive into this morning's text and this morning's message, I wanted to lay the groundwork. I don't usually do this, but I felt with this message it was important. I wanted to present to you five things that I believe to be true that will help us as a foundation for navigating this conversation, okay? So five things real quick. Number one, we all, every single one of us, has an inherent bias against being told what to do. Have you, have you been around kids? <laughs> Have you seen children? Our youngest, Maddie, she has to take a medicine every night, an anti-seizure medicine every night. Every night, same time she has to take it, and every night she tells us no. She knows she's going to lose the battle. She knows she's going to have to take it. But she has, nobody as far as I know has taught her to be so opposed to us, as far as I know. But she has this, would you agree, we have an inherent bias against being told what to do. And it actually doesn't go away as we get older. It gets worse. You start adding in your experiences and your emotions. And here's what I want to say. Don't blindly trust your bias against being told what to do. Second truth here is that God has a unique perspective on humanity. And I would say, according to Scripture, he is uniquely qualified to have one. To not have his own perspective on humanity would make him small and weak. Not much of a God. Number three, God, according to Scripture, has a specific design for human freedom and human flourishing. To not have one would make him unloving and unwise. Number four, God's view might be a little bit different than yours on some things. Okay? And by the way, there's so many people out there now that want to have a personal relationship with God but don't want him to contradict them on any area of their lives. And that's so inconsistent because the very nature of having a personal relationship with someone is giving them the right to disagree with you, right? How many of you who are married said to your spouse, I will commit the rest of my life to you as long as you do not disagree with me on anything, as long as you do not contradict me in any way. If you have a God who does not make you uncomfortable about any area of your life, you have a God of your own making. You have a Stepford God. You have a God that you have created of your own. So God's views might be different. And the number five, something does not become untrue simply because we do not like it, right? I don't like that the only way to get healthy is diet and exercise. But over the course of my life, I've learned it's still true. <laughs> it's not going to become untrue. So let's just keep those five things in front of us as we move through this text. And then one warning I want to give before we jump in, before we get into this. Um, I posted this quote earlier this week on one of our social media accounts by Paul David Tripp. He said, you know you're in spiritual danger when you confess other people's sin more than you do your own. I thought that was such a good reminder. 
You know you're in spiritual danger when you confess, when you talk about other people's sins more than your own, when you're bothered by the way other people sin more than you're bothered by the way you sin. When you're more offended by how other people sin than you are offended at your own sin against God. And so when we get into a message like this this morning where Paul's gonna have some clear, hard things to say to us about the way we live our lives, protect yourself from thinking, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this this morning. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see, can I anonymously send a link to this message to this person? Careful also not to think about the types of sin. So, so as we talk about our words, you might say, well, I, uh, I've really worked very hard to control my language, and so I'm better than people who say things that they shouldn't, but you're a gossip, right? Well, this is what we do. We, choose, we focus on the thing that we're not struggling with, and we think of all the people who are struggling with that, and we miss the opportunity to receive what God wants to say to us this morning, that we all have our money. We might say, I'm not greedy with my, my money. I actually give stuff away, but you're very greedy with your time. There's different categories. Sexual immorality. You might think of all the areas of sexual immorality that you've never been tempted, but trust me, all of us have brokenness in that area and struggle in that area. And so don't miss what the Spirit wants to say to us this morning just because you can think of people who are worse than you, greedier than you, or who struggle with different areas of, in these categories that are different than you. And so there's a lot for us to get this morning. Verse 1, Ephesians chapter 5. All right, that's a, I know that's a lot of prep to get to the text, but I felt like we needed this this morning. Verse 1, Paul says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. We're starting here and we're going to end here. So remember this verse. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talks, and coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. We're going to skip down to verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, and making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the title of this morning's message is Living as a Child of God. And what I want us to see from the text this morning is that there's two things that are true when we live as a child of God. And the first one is this, is that living as a child of God, it brings real freedom and real flourishing. Real freedom, personal freedom, inner, in, uh, inner freedom, and real flourishing growth, right, vitality. Now, our world has its own definition of freedom. Our society, our culture has its own definition of freedom. And if I were to generalize the definition of freedom that our world, America especially, lives by, is it's do what you want, when you want, who you want, with, with or sorry, do what you want, when you want, how you want, with who you want, and don't let anyone question that. Have you picked that up? Have you, have you sensed that? Do what you want, when you want, how you want, with who you want, and don't let anyone make you feel bad about any of that. But true freedom is not the absence of restraints and constraints. 
True freedom is living within the restraints and constraints that have been given to us by a loving, all-loving, all-knowing God. I've used this example before, but think of a fish in a fishbowl who thinks real freedom is out there. If I could just break off the restraints of this glass bowl around me and the restraints of the water that I'm stuck in, then I would experience real freedom and real flourishing, and then the bowl falls over, it breaks, and the fish is flopping around the carpet and realizes this is not (laughs) what I thought it would be. See, sometimes the restraints and the parameters around our lives are not keeping us from life, they're keeping us alive. They're giving us life, freedom and flourishing. And God, in his scripture, clearly defines some parameters for human morality, for the way in which we live, the way in which we treat each other. And it's one way, it's one, it's, it's, some people think, well, this is God just trying to ruin our lives. But what if God knows best? What if God loves most? And what if he's created for us and given us these guidelines so that we might know real freedom and real flourishing? Now, there's a problem here because, as I said earlier, nobody wants to be told what to do. No one wants to bow the knee to anyone else. We all have an inherent bias against worshiping anyone or anything other than ourselves. I came across this article this week by a guy named Thaddeus Williams, and it was called The Fastest Growing Religion in the World. And his argument was that the fastest growing religion in the world is self-worship. Self-worship. Worshiping yourself. And he gave six uh, commandments, the six commandments of self-worship. And I'm going to give you uh, kind of a summary of each of them. The first one is that your mind is the source and standard of truth. So no matter what, trust yourself. In other words, the answers are within. That's the, sixth, that's the first commandment. Second commandment, your emotions are authoritative. So never question or let anyone else question your feelings. This would be follow your heart. Number three, you are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. This would be called live your truth. Number four, you are supreme, so always act according to your chief end to glorify and enjoy yourself forever. This is YOLO, you only live once. The next one is you are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. This would be never change. And number six, commandment, you are the creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose. And this would be authenticity. This really is, I mean, when I was reading the article, I thought, like, this, this really does capture well um, the values of our society, the values of our world. And, and it really, it's not just out there. It, it leaks into all of us. We all struggle with different aspects of this because we've been around it so much. We don't even see it for what it is. There's David Foster Wallace, a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Years ago, he gave a, a commencement speech at Kenyon. And at the beginning, he, he, he told a story about two young fish who are swimming together. And this old fish swims by. And as the old fish swims by, just to make sort of a cordial greeting, says, hey, little guys, how's the water today? And just keeps swimming on. And the two young fish swim on a little further, and the one looks at the other and says, what the heck is water? (laughs) And his point being is that when you're in it, and when you're always in it, you don't see it. You don't recognize it. And many people are so entrenched in this. This is always bombarding us with media, with music, with movies, with narratives, with everything. We're hearing this all the time. We don't even see it for what it is. We can't even recognize it. Now, the kingdom of God is always countercultural. In the kingdom of God, personal freedom and 
shared flourishing, flourishing are not found in living our own way and defining our own truth. Actually, the irony is, is that that's enslavement because what we're doing is we're making something other than the true God our God. We're giving our lives to something that will not give its life for us. So what does it mean to be a child of God? How do we as children of God find real freedom and real flourishing? And in this passage, in this text, Paul is saying, it's easy to think he's just saying, here's all the things not to do. But you'd be missing the point of the text if that's all you see. Paul isn't saying that children of God just stop doing certain things. He's saying is that to be a child of God doesn't just mean you stop doing certain things. It means you start also doing certain things. So stop, yes, but it's also start. Yeah, Paul urges his readers to avoid certain vices specific to the way we speak. Let me explain to you what each of these phrases meant. When Paul said obscene stories, he was referring to anything that is in defiance of social and moral standards, which results in disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. Foolish talk carries the connotations of the kind of nonsensical talk that emerges from people in attendance at banquets where drunkenness was common. Coarse jokes probably refer to a quick-witted, clever humor employed in a malicious or sexually vulgar way. And Paul says these behaviors, I like how he says he doesn't just say stop doing them. He says they're not for you. He's speaking to their identity. You're the children of God. This is not for you. There's, there's, There's better things for you. But he doesn't just say stop. He says instead be those who offer thanksgiving. And I love that about this text, that Paul doesn't just say stop with the coarse jokes, stop with the inappropriate language, stop with all of this. He gives them an alternative, a more beautiful way. Instead of this, be thankful and give thanks to the God from whom every good and perfect gift comes from. And I think what Paul is saying to us here is you can't do both at the same time. That word instead means you got to choose. If you're going to fill your life up with these sort of words, you're robbing yourself and God of the opportunities to give and receive thanks. So what do we do if we struggle with this? We struggle with our words, we struggle with our language, we struggle with our mouth, we struggle with the inappropriate things that we tend to say. Find opportunities, instead of just saying, I'm gonna stop doing that, it won't work. You have to say something new. Instead, I'm gonna be a thankful person. When I would have made an inappropriate joke, when I would have said something, instead I'm gonna find opportunity to be thankful and to express my thankfulness to God. There's an interesting passage, I don't know if I have it on the screen next to me, Ephesians 4, 28. Paul says in the previous passage, oh yeah, we do have it, good. He says, if you are a thief, and he's speaking to a very specific type of person here, right? If you're a thief, quit stealing. Good, right? Good advice. But he doesn't stop there. Because for the Christian, we don't just stop doing things, we start doing new things because we're children of God, we have a new identity. Instead, use your hands, the same hands that used to steal, use your hands for good hard work. (laughs) Those hands that used to take what didn't belong to you, put them to good use, and then give generously to others in need. Here's what he's saying. What used to take from others, now used to give to others. And Paul's saying, with your words, instead of cursing, choose blessing. So it's not just stop, it's start. So whatever area of your life, whether in your words, in your money, and in your body, that you struggle to honor God with the most, don't just focus on not doing that sinful activity anymore. Instead, ask God, what should I be doing instead? How should I be expressing my life, my words, my body, and my money in worship to you and not self-worship, worship to myself? Instead of being a thief, now use your hands to do good hard work and to bless others. Because we've not just been saved from something, we've been saved for something. 
God didn't just get you out of a mess. He got you into life, into purpose as his children. And then in verse 5, Paul goes on to mention three groups, the sexually immoral, the impure, and the covetous. These are big umbrellas. There's a lot that falls underneath them. And it corresponds to the three categories of sin that he mentioned in verse 3. But one thing we have to realize is that Paul is not declaring that anyone who commits these sins is excluded from God's heavenly kingdom. He's not saying if you do this once, you're out. What he's saying is those who persistently give themselves over to these sins, who have a pattern of this sort of sinful behavior, even if you call yourself a child of God, your life proves that you're not. You're living in a way that proves that you can say all the right things, but you're actually not a child of God because you're living in a way that is out of step with the freedom and flourishing that God wants to offer to his children. And then Paul continues this theme into the second part that we read. Verse 15, he says, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but instead like those who are wise. This is the contrast. He keeps giving us this juxtaposition of how you, sh- you live as a slave versus how you live as a child of God. Make the most of every opportunity. That means redeem the time. Make the time useful for God. Don't act thoughtlessly, but instead understand what the Lord wants to do, wants you to do. And then he says, don't be drunk with wine. It will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we've been reading through this book as a church on version. We just finished it up, and starting December 1st, we're going to begin a new read-together plan, 25 days, all Christmas Advent-themed reading, so you can join and be a part of that. The, 20, the 1st through the 25th, we'll do it together as a church. But uh, when we read this passage a few weeks ago, I, made this, I posted this comment in our, uh, I guess it would be our board, uh, our comment board, and I said this, and I wanted to read it to you. Paul in this passage about don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. The drunkenness will ruin your life. And I mean, there's, I, there's so much evidence of that, right? That, that, that a life of drunkenness will ruin someone's life and the lives of other people around them, okay? So I don't think we have to debate on that. But Paul, here's what he does. He provides an interesting contrast between natural drunkenness and being filled with the Holy Spirit. For many people, alcohol and other addictive substances are a form of temporary escape from pain, from reality, uh, or a way of sensations, or way into sensations of joy. Or for some people, it's a mean to gain confidence. You know, some people refer to alcohol as liquid, liquid courage, gives you, gives you the courage to say things and be the person that you wish you could be normally. Um, or an attempt to belong with those who are doing the same, right? I mean, I don't mean to simplify a a complex issue, but those are some of the main reasons why people give themselves regularly to drunkenness, to escape, to get into some sense of joy, to gain some sense of confidence, or to belong with those who are doing the same. And there's others, but those are big ones. Now, on the contrary, and I think this is what Paul wants us to see here, on the contrary, the Holy Spirit, the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, brings us and not into escape, but into the truest reality. Opens our eyes to what is really true. Shows us the truer story, the better story. Fills us with eternal joy, not temporary joy that goes away when the buzz goes away. Gives us confidence and hope and certainty that is not tied to a liquid or to our performance or to our job description or to our relationships, but is tied to what Christ has done for us. And ultimately makes us a part of the people of God, which is where we really belong. His children. And that's why I think Paul compares this drunkenness with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because what he's saying is what many people are looking for in addictive practices, and this could be, this is not just alcohol, this could be drugs, of course, this could be food, this could be entertainment, this could be all sorts of levels of, all different types of addiction, right? But what people are often looking for, what Paul is saying here, 
It's actually the, the, the real thing is found in Christ. And when the spirit of God is dwelling within you, it doesn't mean your struggle goes away, right? How many of us would admit all our struggles didn't go away? A couple of us. Um, but what we learn is we have somewhere to turn besides just more of the same. And that is the nature of addiction, just more of the same. And not just more of the same, but more and more and more and more of the same, right? To, to keep the high. And so here we have this, and here's what Paul's saying. Instead of relying on drunkenness for life and joy and pleasure, find your life, your joy, and your pleasure in the Holy Spirit. Because living as a child of God, we don't just stop doing some things, we start doing new things. So the question, before we get to our last point this morning, the question for you this morning is, not, there are some things that probably, hopefully the Spirit will say to you, you need to lay these things down. But also, don't just leave answering that question saying, God, what are you asking me to pick up? What do I start? What are some things I'm not doing now that I can start doing that will replace the things that I'm going to stop doing? So living as a child of God brings real freedom and real flourishing. And then the last point this morning is this. The living as a child of God brings real or right heart motivation. See, there's a lot of people who try to live good for lots of different reasons, but being a child of God gives you the real reason, the right reason, the best reason. In in verse 5, let me explain this. In verse 5, Paul says that a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. And idolatry is basically enslaving yourself to something, putting your hope and your trust, pledging your allegiance to something other than Jesus and saying, I hope you can save me. I hope you can deliver me. I hope you can give me what I need most. And every single person, so when he says that greed, to be greedy is to be an idolater, it's because at the moment of sin, it's an over-desire that has our hearts, that we want something too much, that something that we want to have actually has us, controls us. And Paul is teaching us here that we forget or question the goodness of Jesus when we sin because we give our affection and our attention to another God, a lesser God, a false God. So what do we do? Well, remember, all these commands are preceded by this reminder in verse one. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do. Why? Because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loves us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. And as the band comes up, we're going to sing a song and close. Here's what I want us to get. The real heart motivation for doing these things, the right heart motivation is never to become a child of God, but because Jesus has done everything necessary to make you a child of God. If you, hear these, if you hear everything I've set up until this point and you try to go live this way on your own strength, you'll never do it. You'll be exhausted, you'll be worn out, you'll be frustrated, you'll always be comparing yourself with others. You'll never know if you've done enough to earn God's approval. But if you hear what I'm saying now, it will give you the heart motivation to begin this journey with new energy and new strength and new desires. Because God says, I've done everything necessary to make you my child. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter one, the, the Apostle John describes Jesus as the Word. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, the Word became flesh, and he made his dwelling amongst us. So we know that John is talking about the person of Jesus Christ. But in verses 12 and 13, he says, to all who believed in Jesus, God gave them the right, the legal rights. This is adoption we're talking about. The legal right to be called sons and daughters of God. So why does 
Why does God call us his children? How was that made possible? It's made possible because in verse two, can we go back one slide? It says that Jesus made himself, he, Jesus loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice. Jesus was the pleasing aroma to God. You and I are not the pleasing aroma to God. Our lives are not producing this thing that draws God in. But Jesus did that for us. And because Jesus Christ did that for us, so because the Father let his one and only Son be sent out, so to speak, on our behalf, so that we could be brought in, so that we become children of God. And you cannot imitate God and live the life that Paul is describing here of sexual purity, of generosity with your money, and using your words to bless others. You can't do it until you've heard God say, you're my child with whom I'm well pleased. And I delight in you. And I love you. And listen, it's not because you got these three categories squared away, because most of us don't. It's because Jesus got it right for you. Jesus didn't come just to be our example. Jesus Christ came to be our substitute. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And he did it so that we wouldn't achieve righteousness, the approval of God, but that we might receive the approval of God. So imitate God as his dear children. God speaks to us as his children. He loves us and he wants the best for us. God wants the best. I want you to hear this this morning. God wants the best for your freedom and for your flourishing. And it might not be found where you thought it was always found. But can you trust that he knows and that he cares? Let's pray together this morning.